mic and the light look the same. Uh, my name is Guy Nordenson. I'm a structural engineer, and I teach here in the School of Architecture. Um, our third panel today is made up of architects and engineers. This is, I think, somewhat un um, uncommon in discussions about political theory and politics. The field of architecture and engineering, particularly in the U.S., has on the whole stayed away from these questions in the past 30 or more years, and I think in particular here in this school. The events of 9-11 changed this. Uh, not only were these attacks on buildings that made it quite obvious the symbolic power of architecture, but the search and recovery operations and subsequent discussions on rebuilding have involved the public and our politicians in large questions on infrastructure, engineering, and architecture in an unprecedented way. This, I think, is an important development both for architecture in the U.S. and for our society here uh, in general. I was involved in, in the, some of the search and rescue recovery work at World Trade Center site and some of the debates on reconstruction. What struck me profoundly at the site in particular was the self-organizing capacity of civil society in the aftermath and in the midst of complete chaos. The government had no plan to respond to this disaster so that the response had to emerge from the ground up, so to speak, and it did. As you probably know, um, the Office of Emergency Management for the City of New York was housed in World Trade Center 7, which was destroyed um, on 9-11, and in any event, their staffing was nowhere near um, at the level that was required to deal with a situation like this. And again, as you know, the communication systems that were in place for the police and firemen, as well as the um, emergency personnel, were completely inadequate um, before 9-11 and just simply didn't work. So everything had to be Im improvised. Um, the command center was set up in an intermediate school uh, near uh, in, in Battery Park City. Um, most of the meetings were taking place in classrooms in that school where everybody would sit around a table where the chairs were about eight inches off the ground because it was uh, intermediate school. So we all were immediately humbled and uh, got to business. Um, <clears throat> if you recall as well, the development of plans for Ground Zero um, that have been going on over the last year and a half you will agree, I think, that despite the ultimate outcome, the process was at times unusually democratic. <clears throat> Reorganization is clearly an important opportunity um, where there is a disaster. The late relief expert and organizer Fred Cuny understood this and put it into action in Sarajevo and Kurdistan in 1991 and elsewhere. Um, it's a very interesting story um, for those of you in the field of architecture and planning, this one of Fred Cuny, who was very active in a, a number of different places in trying to figure out how to plan post-disaster recovery, both after earthquakes and after war, and developed some very imaginative responses in terms of planning of relief and of um, refugee um, uh, uh, camps and also getting refugees um, back into their homes. He was really the one who probably had more to do with success of resettlement in Kurdistan um, after the 1991 Gulf War, working with um, Jay Garner, who at the time was the major general in the uh, charge of the army in the north. 
What he accomplished, I think, was based on an understanding of the intimate relationship of infrastructure, water, urban policy, transportation, etc., and the construction or reconstruction of civil society, and also the complexities and strong economic interests that structure that infrastructure. Reconstruction of infrastructure of cultural institutions, including the recovery of looted natural treasure, national treasures, is an intimate part of political reconstruction. Obviously, the Bush administration understands this, since most of its leaders have done business and made their fortunes in the industries of infrastructure. So we want to open these questions here today in the context of these discussions this morning and this afternoon and explore the relationship of these structures and political structures here um, in this session. I'd like to introduce um, all three of our uh, distinguished speakers this afternoon. Um, the first one is Antoine Picon. Um, some of you are familiar with Antoine. He taught here as a visiting professor for a number of years and is now teaching at the Harvard Graduate School of, of Design. Antoine Picon has taught history of architecture, urban design, and technology in Paris at the École Nationale des Ponts et Chaussées and the Sorbonne. In fall 2002, he joined the Harvard Design School as professor of the history of architecture and technology. Antoine is an engineer as well as a historian. He has published extensively on the relationship between architecture, urban design, science, and technology. He is in particular the author of French Architects and Engineers in the Age of Enlightenment and Claude Perrault et la Curiosité Classique, um, was both of which were published in 1988. In 97, he edited a dictionary of the history of engineering for the Centre Pompidou, L'Art de l'Ingénieur, Constructeur, Entrepreneur, Inventeur, which was part of a major exhibition on the history of, of engineering at the turn of the millennium. His recent work include an essay on the contemporary urban landscape and its significance, La Ville, Territoire des Cyborgs, de Cibor, 1998, an introduction essay to the English translation of Durand's lecture on architecture, a his history of Parisian cartography, as well as books on the relationship between 19th century French utopian thought and the territorial and urban debates of the time. Our second speaker um, today, also from the Graduate School of Design at Harvard, is Hashem Sarkis. Um, Hashem Sarkis is the Aga Khan Professor of Landscape Architecture and Urbanism at Harvard University Graduate School of Design. He teaches design studios and courses in the history and theory of architecture, such as design in development, practices in democracy, post-World War II architecture, and the challenges of radical and pluralist politics, constructing visions, a history and theory of perspectives, applications in architecture, and so on. He's a practicing architect in Lebanon. He has a number of projects underway and under construction there, um, as well as his work in, um, at, at Harvard. He's author of several books and articles, including Circa 1958, Lebanon in the Pictures and Plans of Constantine Doxiadis, and co-editor with Peter Rowe, the dean, at the, the dean at the Graduate School of Design at Harvard, of Projecting Beirut and editor of the Corbusier's Venice Hospital and the Matt Building Revival, a volume in the case publication series that he edits for, um, for Harvard. Our third speaker um, today, an architect, is uh, a graduate of the PhD program of this school, Dr. Francis Duffy. Um, Dr. Duffy founded the DEGW partnership with John Worthington and Luigi Gifone in 1974. Uh, this partnership is based in um, London, but has offices in Amsterdam, Athens, Glasgow, 
Madrid, uh, New York, Paris, and other cities. He has recently moved to New York to run their office in New York. Um, Duffy is an ex-president of the RIBA, the Royal Institute of British Architects, and of the Architects Council of Europe. He served as an elected architect member of the UK Architects Registration Board. He is a trustee of the Architecture Foundation, a contributing editor to Architectural Record, and is a visiting professor at MIT uh, for the last um, number of years. He's also a commander of the British Empire. He has, in his work with his firm, DEGW, concentrated on three main um, streams of ideas. The first has to do with the relationship with relating changes in organizational situations and information technology to offices and other kinds of design. Duffy is particularly interested not only in change management, but also in measuring how effectively and efficiently buildings are used are being used to meet their changing goals. His second stream is in the research area, which has been to build up through projects such as um, a number of projects he's done around Europe, the relationship of, of um, well, the basic research on, on open office planning, the workplace, and new uh, technologies for um, working. The third area is the developing the theory and practice of design through writing for wide audience at a number of different levels. He's written uh, a number of books, including Office Landscaping, Planning Office uh, Space, The Changing City, The Changing Workplace, The Responsible Workplace, The New Office, and is now working on a number of books, including New Environments for Working, Architectural Knowledge, and Design for Change. Um, with that, I'd like to turn it over to our first speaker, Antoine Picon. Thank you. Well, as you may imagine, it's not very easy for somebody who, by national affiliation, should be put into the category of the non-willing uh, <laughs> to address the issue of the reconstruction in Iraq. Uh, what I'd like to deal with is try to discuss a little bit the relation between infrastructure and democracy and then turn to, to the question raised by the Iraqi situation. Intuitively, it seems quite evident that infrastructure represent an important component of any ambitious political action. But what kind of politics is it associated with and under which condition? On the one hand, infrastructures have often been built and maintained in the perspective of fostering democracy, from the building of the Erie Canal to the New Deal Tennessee Valley Enterprise, American history offers multiple examples of infrastructure policies linked to democratic concerns. On the other hand, one must keep in mind that the first large European freeway system were built by Nazi Germany and fascist Italy with an objective that was certainly not democratic. So the conclusion is that in the aftermath of the Iraq conflict and the necessity to rebuild part of the country infrastructure, the nature of the relation between infrastructure and politics appears indeed as an important subject. To throw some light of the on the question, history is perhaps of some use. First, I would like to note that um, the notion of infrastructure is actually dated. Uh, it's almost contemporary with our modern ideal of democracy. 
It is indeed during the second half of the 18th century that the notion appeared gradually. Before that time, there was no specific category encompassing realization like highways, bridges, canals, harbors. Actually, most of these realizations were considered as branches of architecture. In 18th century England or France, the emergence of the notion of infrastructure was inseparable from the uh, rise of a concern for public welfare. According to the first economists, like Adam Smith on one side of the channel, or François Quenet, the physiocrat in France, an easy circulation of men and merchandises was among the primary conditions for the establishment of a free market. And free market appeared in its turn as inseparable from political freedom. The French state engineers that were in charge of the construction and maintenance of highways and bridges in the 18th century gave a striking expression of this link between infrastructure and political freedom. They postulated that the infrastructure they were building had not only a physical utility, but also a moral one. According to them, through the easy communication they enabled, former feudal prejudices that hampered social progress were supposed to disappear gradually. Which means one thing, actually, which is that the notion of infrastructure has a kind of utopian track in it. Uh, we are still the inheritor of this optimistic, almost utopian vision when we imagine that infrastructure paved automatically the way for economic and social development. This is a very common assumption with railroads, uh, planes, and so forth. Uh, social welfare will fo foster political and social progress. Many counterexamples, and I've just mentioned two, uh, should, however, make us cautious about infrastructure and their impact. In the past two centuries, technological modernization has not always implied political and social emancipation, far from it. During the 19th century, uh, leaving aside the Nazi freeways, railways were, for instance, built all over the world in political contexts that were often adverse to democratic ideals. I think this ambiguity is rooted in the very notion of infrastructure that rely on an opposition between a level that is supposed to be truly fundamental in close connection with man's elementary needs and a more superficial one. In other words, the notion of infrastructure as it emerged during the 18th century implies that there is a superstructural level that should be distinguished from the infrastructural one. Although he dealt only with the manufacturing system of his time, Karl Marx gave the most striking expression of this distinction in his writings. Without even being conscious of it, our reflection on infrastructures often bases itself on the assumption that they belong, just as the economic structures of production and exchange, to a level that is supposed to be more fundamental than production like the sciences and the arts, or even the cultural values that prevail in a given society. In other words, we have always the temptation to think that infrastructure are indeed so necessary that they're, so to say, the basis of um, many other things. Before Marx, the French state engineers that I mentioned earlier were already entertaining this vision of an infrastructural level that was a precondition of political and social progress. Here I'd like to mention, however, one of them who visited uh, Holland during the Napoleonic War. 
and who made a very striking discovery, at least for a French state engineer while visiting this country, that had been at the time partly annexed to the French Empire, I suppose in order to bring peace to it. Um, Studying the Dutch hydraulic system, the dams in particular, he realized that they were inseparable from an entire social organization comprising not only engineers, but also a lot of ordinary people from local villages in charge of maintenance and repair. Interestingly, this engineer was later to become the mentor of Frédéric Leplay, a prominent French social reformer of the second half of the 19th century. I think what he told his protégé was basically that technology, and infrastructure in particular, could not be envisaged only as a system of objects. They were inseparable from a whole range of social practices, as well as from a set of shared values that gave these practices their full meaning. In the Dutch case, These practices were embedded in a widespread sense of responsibility regarding the fight against nature. In other words, infrastructure could not be separated from the social base that made it possible. So I would, in a way, argue that, contrary to the common assumption, infrastructure are not really infrastructural. They are actually superstructure uh, that are the products of communities and their share values. A specialist of network theory very often expressed that, saying that there is no network without regulation. Regulation is perhaps the true infrastructure, not the system of uh, roads or pipes or whatsoever. So communities and their shared values. These communities are not necessarily democratic, far from it. As I already mentioned it, many infrastructure were built by authoritarian powers. Leaving aside extreme cases like the Nazi or fascist regimes, colonial situation offer multiple examples of that authoritarian context. In many cases, one has also to note that the infrastructure left by the colonizer have not been later used in a more democratic perspective. So in short, and this is already what Guy mentioned, the reconstruction of Iraq's infrastructure cannot be separated from the political and social realm. It's a reconstruction that would focus on the mere technical dimension is almost certainly doomed to failure. Infrastructures have not only to be constructed, they must be maintained, and maintenance is in itself a major challenge that implies some kind of community building. It's very clear, by the way, technological evolution has made infrastructure more and more dependent, not on the initial stage of construction, but on maintenance. And this is probably a key problem uh, everywhere in the world, in Iraq to begin with. So... Can we learn something from history in that context? Actually, I'm not so sure we can learn from history, to be absolutely honest. Uh, and, um, but let's try, however. Uh, first, we should note that Iraq is not a tabula rasa on which state-of-the-art technology is to be brought by foreign intervention without caution, which is a very common temptation. It is indeed the Let's be reminded that of that one of the oldest civilizations in the world, and any attempt at its reconstruction should begin by a careful study of the cultural attitudes towards technology that are embedded in the society. Many colonial enterprises have failed because of their naive belief in a progress that had necessarily to be imposed on people without their assent. 
the same mistake should probably be avoided in the present case. One should, I think, in particular be cautious about assumptions regarding the role of infrastructure as a mean to foster a Western-inspired type of free market and capitalism. I'm not sure that the Iraqi are ready to accept so brutal a passage. Uh, to be even more explicit, but that's true and part of the non-willing once more, um, there is not a unique type of democracy. There is perhaps a unique concept, I'm not even sure of that, but there is no unique type of democracy. And I'm quite struck, you know, when I look at the t television and looked at the, the infrastructure, I just told, I live in Cambridge for sure, which explained the following remark, I was struck by the quality of the roads. You know, no holes in it, uh, quite wonderful, uh, which were certainly not American roads, uh, which led me also to remark that in Iraq, infrastructure seemed to be very much linked to state administration and to an extent uh, much greater than in the U.S. There seemed to be a kind of state tradition uh, much stronger which would lead perhaps to the strange idea that, after all, a model like the European one, where the state is much more involved in the regulation of economic life as well as the planning of infrastructure, might perhaps be more adapted to Iraq than the American rather extreme form of political and economical laissez-faire. Uh, infrastructure are inseparable, as I said, from political and social organization. I think in the case of Iraq, a supplementary challenge is, of course, linked to the internal divisions of the country that have been mentioned again and again, divisions that were far less pronounced in Western nations like England, France, or the United States when they launched their first ambitious programs of infrastructures. Uh, in that respect, lessons are perhaps to be drawn from the former Yugoslavian zone there are also communities with often conflicting agendas have been obliged to manage together the infrastructure inherited from the communist era, which might lead also some, you know, sociologists of science and technologies uh, tend to push the idea that instead of de defining politics as a purely intellectual debate, we could also define politics as a way to manage together objects, te technological objects, for example. And uh, sociologists like Bruno Latour, for example, defend that kind of idea. And there is perhaps in the case of Iraq something like that that sh sh could be explored. That, in a way, uh, between the Sunni and the Shiites and so forth, managing together technological infrastructure might be a possible definition of politics uh, that it would be interesting to explore. Uh, another remark I'd like to make is about memory. Uh, infrastructure are things that are built on long periods of time. You do not construct a road system, a freeway system, or whatsoever in a couple of years. It's things that take very long to build, that take very long to learn to manage, and some sense of continuity is necessary. A continuity, uh, of course, going toward the future, but I think also continuity with the past. Uh, one of the things I fear in the Iraq story, to be honest, is the total eradication of any memory of what happened during the horrible Ba'ath regime. I think there is a necessity to reconstruct 
at least on the technological side, a continuous history with what has happened before. Uh, I think uh, to make Iraq uh, oblivious of its former history in the domain, uh, in a domain like infrastructure but also architecture, uh, would be a problem. Finally, I would like to say a word about scientific and technological education. It's quite striking how in the 18th century, infrastructure building at its beginning was inseparable from the first attempts made to provide engineers and other technical figures with a new kind of education, enabling them to design and manage the new roads, bridges, and highways. In England, the first engineers' professional association were created during the 18th century. In France, the first school of engineer. Uh, uh, infrastructure has very strongly with te technological education. More generally, scientific and technological education seems to me a priority in Iraq's case, the true infrastructure, so to say. Contrary to the Marshall Plan, which dealt with countries which had already very strong structure of scientific and technological education, and once more among the continuities of the, of, between um, pre-war and post-war Germany, or Japan, one find a structure of education. Uh, I think Iraq's reconstruction, contrary to the German or the Japanese case, will have to do with uh, a less sophisticated education system, at least uh, in science and technology. So, and this is probably where one of the major challenge for me might lie by the end. Thank you very much. Thank you, Antoine. I, I just realized, which is quite nice, is that our panel of architects and engineers are French, British, and Lebanese, which is good, I think. Um, our next speaker is um, Hashim Sarkis. Um, Hashim was uh, recently bitten by infrastructure, and so he's going to be <laughs> speaking from, uh, from his chair. Thank you. Thanks, Guy. Uh, the charge given to me by the organizers and as such, the comments that I will be making will focus on the experience of development and reconstruction in Lebanon after the war, but more specifically on the connection between the social and physical reconstruction that the notion of development brings about. I rely on Amartya Sen's definition of development as the precondition for freedom. According to Sen, only when given adequate shelter, food, education, and health and increase social and economic well-being as a result, can individuals exercise their choices ra rationally and freely? The reverse is also true according to Sen. Only when given free choices in life can individuals improve on their social and economic situations. In the Third World, and following the Truman Doctrine, development became the aim of many nations, that is, to accelerate their social and economic status and catch up with the developed world. The Truman Doctrine gave definition for development by way of underdevelopment. The means to achieve development were building physical infrastructure, a social infrastructure, and administrative infrastructure, and doing that fast. The, the instruments that were made available to those countries was, or the, rather the unique instrument that was made available was planning, and it was, for the most part, national planning. Development brought about physical infrastructure, electricity, telephone, water, etc., to these countries, 
And we have to keep in mind, like Rainer Bannum reminds us, that it's really not until the aftermath of the Second World War that modernization hit the rest of the world. So modernization arrives after, with development, with the charge of development. However, invariably, history goes, very few of these plans were fully realized. And in many cases, their partial realization led to unexpected, undesirable consequences. For example, one of those major consequences was urbanization at the, at the expense of rural areas and uh, concentrated wealth in the hands of minorities. Still, however, the idea and the ambition of development survives and remains today an indispensable pursuit in the third world, no matter how contradictory it has proven to be. In the case of Lebanon, historians like Albert Hurani argue that this very pursuit of development and the imbalances between the country and the city, between the rest of the country and Beirut that it had created, may have been one of the main reasons behind the Lebanese civil war, which lasted between 1975 and 1990. The significance of Horani's statement here is that it introduces a socio-economic reason that has been eclipsed in the writing of the history of the war by the political, ethnic, confessional, and regional problems attributed to this war, or series of wars. Indeed, Lebanon and Beirut, as the organizers of the conference have noted, have been evoked quite frequently in recent months in the discussions about Iraq's reconstruction and for at least, I think, three different reasons. The first reason is that Lebanon and Beirut act as a model of what might happen if the confessional and ethnic groups unleashed their animosities on each other. I will not dwell on this point, but leave it to your worst nightmares to imagine what could happen. The second reason is Beirut has been evoked as the other capital city invaded by a foreign army had, that could not and would not leave. Lebanon, until the early 70s, was seen by the whole world as a successful, albeit fragile, experiment in democratic coexistence among different religious groups. And here I take issue with some of the statements made in the first panel about the lack of democracy in the Arab world. This is just one example. This democracy produced high level of development in Beirut at the expense of the countryside. In 1975, and with the increasing presence of the Palestinians and growing fears among the Christians of this presence, a civil war broke out that would be contained by Syrian and Arab armies in 1977, only to be refueled by the post-Camp David realliances. In 1982, Israel invaded Lebanon to get rid of the Syrian-Palestinian threat and to install a pro-Israeli government that would support a peace treaty with Israel. None of these aims would materialize. Instead, there were civilian massacres, more civil wars, disastrous interventions on the part of Americans and Europeans, and the complete collapse of the state and civil society. The lessons from Lebanon to the Americans on Iraq in today's press have ranged from don't forget to leave to be forceful, committed, and don't give up as you did give up in Beirut. The third and most important reason for this discussion, the third way in which Beirut has been evolved evoked is as another Arab country that has undergone a major reconstruction venture, and that is the venture that is still ongoing since the 90s. By 1990, the disaster of Lebanon had to be contained, and it is well acknowledged that peace arrived in the form of Syrian hegemony in exchange for support in the desert storm. Soon after the Taif Accord, an accord among Lebanese factions and the redistribution of power between Christians and Muslims, a plan for the recovery of Lebanon, as it was called, was drafted by Bechtel, and a Lebanese-Egyptian-Jordanian company called Dar al-Handasa, 
which heavily emphasized the rebuilding of the physical reconstruction. The economic and social issues were visibly absent. Some argue deliberately, some argue because of lack of a project, some argue in order to forget about the social issues that were too fragile to address at the end of the war. The government embarked on borrowing money to rebuild the infrastructure that had been really dilapidated, unlike the Iraqi infrastructure, incredibly dilapidated after 15 years of war. There were estimates that there would be $30 billion to be spent, and they were indeed borrowed and spent on the seaport, the airport, roads, water, phones, and most ostentatiously on the reconstruction of the downtown of Beirut. When in the first few years after the war, the still rather fragile balance in the government failed to implement the reconstruction plan, it's interesting that the political government was displaced by technocrats. A technocratic government was created, and as well acknowledged, political decision-making was in Syria, and this, the technocrats was, were given the charge to develop, to rebuild the country. Significantly, at that very moment, an executive body called the Council for Development and Reconstruction, which had been created in 77, reshaped after an institutional setup made up in the 50s, which was modeled after a planning board set up in Iraq that I will get to back in, in a second. Uh, the Council for Development and Reconstruction was revamped and given maximum authority to do the following. First, to operate outside the political system. Second, to make plans and define projects. Third, to raise funds for these plans from foreign and local agencies and institutions. Fourth, to sign contracts with the lenders. And fifth, to sup supervise the execution of these projects by ministries. You can imagine the tensions that would be created in a country like this. The political organization is running the politics, whereas the big reconstruction project is run by an independent agency called the Council for Development and Reconstruction. The story is much more complex than that. But by 1977, it became clear that while the physical signs of reconstruction, and we dwell a lot on the physical signs of reconstruction in Lebanon as evidence that we are rebuilding. It's very much a French tradition, I think, in, in planning and uh, rebuilding. While these physical signs were be beginning to appear, and appear rather big, big highways, uh, big airport, much bigger than we need, uh, big seaport, the debts were also accumulating, and the economy was suffering. The economy is now at $30 billion debt, the highest per capita debt in the world, and the Lebanese are very jealous of the fact that Argentina is getting all the attention, not Lebanon, about that particular issue. Most importantly for this discussion, the developmental imbalances were further exaggerated between the country and the city. Thus, the separation between development and politics backfired. And it may have backfired for several reasons. There was lack of information that led to a lot of distrust, lack of information about the projects that was exchanged. They were considered to be simply technocratic material, not political material. Uh, there was distrust between the religious groups that increased as a result of that, the Christians accusing the Muslims of taking all the money and running, uh, the Muslims accusing the Christians of not participating in the political economy. And as a result of that, more than 500,000 Lebanese have emigrated since the end of the war. A population of 3.5 million cannot suffer the emigration of 500,000 workforce members. In Lebanon, the justification for this has been given by the government in two ways. On the one hand, they say, well, these are the pains of harsh development. We have to bear those consequences. These are the consequences. We had to do this, and now we're going through the second phase, and only after all of this is realized do the benefits at the social and economic level appear. The trickle-down politics explained 
to the public in this manner. The second method in which this argument has been explained, and it's been explained in different ways, is that ultimately there's a failure in planning, or rather there's a failure of planning in general. Acknowledging that it might be better left to the free market, there has been an embarkment on the privatization of the infrastructure of Lebanon and the release of a lot of the uh, rules and principles that actually give the government the little authority that it had had over social security and welfare. I think that the reasons behind this failure have to do with five main points. The first is the separation of development from politics. Second is the lack of information and participation. Third, there's a lack of accountability as a result of the separation above. Fourth, there's a lack of trust that happens as a result of the separation. And fifth, and most importantly, I think, for the case of Iraq, there's a lack of a safety net for the general public when the government embarks on such a large mobilizational project that entails the participation of everybody. If we try and we fail, what is our safety net? These, I think, are the more important lessons to carry from Lebanon to Iraq. And I would like to go to Iraq's pursuit of development for a bit because I think there lies a closer, because that merits a closer examination and uh, a study of what that history of development in Iraq is merits more than what I will do in the remaining few minutes. But I think it is, as Antoine mentioned, it is very important to situate today's reconstruction in the history of development in Iraq, which is a very long and I think rather unique and dynamic history and one that has shaped a particular development culture that has been emulated in the Arab world for several years. Since the late 19th century, this development culture could be characterized as one that is heavily dependent on exploitation of natural resources, first. Second, one that links the income from these resources directly to the developmental spending. Third, an approach to development that is top-down, that is exclusive, and that usually works at the level of national planning. Fourth, that it is actually a very highly mobilizational approach to development that mobilizes and supports, in some cases and some cases forgets, a rather small working population. Briefly, the late 19th century Ottoman reforms under Methat Pasha, the Ottoman ruler, regulated land tenure and irrigation in the area and helped lay the foundations of the agriculturally-based economy of the early British mandate, and actually helped articulate another level of the national identity of Iraq, which uh, became based on this infrastructural setup. And here again, I take issue with the argument that was made in the first panel that Iraq does not have a national identity. Since the Umayyad times, even before, there are many meanings that are given to national identity that have layered one on top of the other, so it's a very complex national identity, not a unique one. And all you have to do is look at Italy and argue that that nation has a single national identity, let alone Iraq. This setup, this setup that was based first in the Ottoman Empire and then followed up in the British Mandate, led to an increasing connection between the three provinces, the province of Mosul, Baghdad, and Masra, around the irrigation projects and around the two rivers. In the 20s and 30s, the, administration, the administrative overhaul by the mandate accompanied the setup of the oil concessions that guaranteed massive job opportunities for the region. Many Arabs from the neighboring nation states, the nascent nation states, moved to 
uh, Baghdad. And there was a lot of work. Actually, my grandfather, a Christian Lebanese from Mount Lebanon, emigrated to Baghdad in the 30s and worked so hard he died there and is still buried there. I never met him. Trying hard to stand out against Arab nationalism and in the beginnings of the Cold War politics, the governments of the 1950s, uh, mostly under the guidance of Nouri Said, established what was known as the Development Board, a very unique experiment which uh, put development outside of politics. The Development Board was a national board, uh, not a private board, a public board, I'm sorry, and uh, was one where 100% initially of the oil revenue of Iraq was channeled to this board in order that the monies get spent directly in development projects on infrastructure, on water, on irrigation projects, administrative reform, and eventually on housing projects uh, built for the workers. The development board consisted of technocrats and members of the political elite that were outside of politics at that particular moment, and uh, focused greatly on agricultural setup. As a result of that, this helped initially in creating an infrastructure that was decentralized, even though the political system was highly centralized. Uh, so there were attempts at decentralization in this project, and I think, I don't know if I'm correct, but uh, if you look at the population distribution in Iraq, even though it's highly urbanized, it is quite well distributed in the regions, and that's as a result of the presence of settlements all around the country. Like there are about 10 or more cities that are beyond 1 million in population outside Baghdad, Mosul, and Basra. So th that, I think, that pattern of settlement stems from all of these attempts at decentralization, I, I believe. However, th there were basic problems with the development board, not unlike the problems that we face today in the development and reconstruction board. Uh, more importantly, the, the way in which these monies that were, uh, there were seen to be the wealth of Iraq were channeled directly to development projects uh, they, they limited the consumption of this money by government employees and by the middle class, and this was a very uh, big in, uh, administrative infrastructure at that time, that according to John Waterbury and many other historians, this led to the coup of 1958. The coup by army officers in 1958 was also a coup by the middle classes against the consumption of the monies away from them. Hmm. And, uh, or at least partly so, I mean, we, we cannot forget the big picture, which is the regional politics and the Cold War, and the uh, Eisenhower Doctrine at that time, and the alliances between e Egypt and some Arab countries against, uh, against Iraq, the Iraq uh, Pact with the Eisenhower Doctrine, and of course the context being the Israeli-Arab Wars. Soon after the coup, a planning board was created, and that I think is an interesting thing, where when you, there was a major revolution, and yet the revolution maintained the setup, the administrative setup, but moved the the uh, first board, the development board, to become a planning board. And the planning board was integrated in the government. It consisted of the ministers of the obvious uh, ministries. It still remained very exclusive, uh, and yet it did move towards industrialization as opposed to uh, agricultural reform. It uh, created oil-related industries, and uh, as a result, I think it also helped accelerate the process of urbanization. And in Iraq, it's probably one of the higher urban populations among Arab countries. I need to consult the figures of today, and then there are no figures today. The early years of Ba'athism, and during the oil boom before the Iran-Iraq war, 
there was an acceleration of urbanization, but there was also another important thing that was happening, which is the expansion of the safety net that was created in the uh, earlier years. And education and health services became heavily invested in at that period. Interestingly, however, and I have yet to understand why this happens, in the 1970s, Iraq becomes a heavily service-oriented economy, more so than many of the other countries lacking in natural resources and industry. 75% of the population of the workforce was working in, um, in services versus uh, 11% and 12% or so to agriculture and, uh, and industry. I do not know if I can go out on a limb, but I will, to propose that perhaps the whole setup of the oil for food could be understood within this kind of centralized distribution, centralized consumption of a natural resource and its distribution to the public for the general public. And even though there, for all the disasters that accompanied that and the rule of the mafias and the formalized forms of embezzlement that uh, occurred, introduced very different processes and scales that at once created an infrastructure and eradicated civil society along with the real infrastructure. I think the reconstruction of today's Iraq should be seen in this perspective and as part of this continuing development culture. But I think it also requires a much more effective mechanism of planning and a socioeconomic safety net for this major endeavor of reconstruction to work. I return to Amartya Sen to reflect a bit more on planning. Sen outlines three objectives to coordinated social action or to planning. In response to the difficulty that faces planning, which is to generate coordinated concerted social action out of the interests and plans of, social, of individual groups or smaller groups or individuals. Uh, he argues that if these groups are informed about their needs and about the needs of those of others and mobilized to understand them through excessive information or adequate information about what these needs are, then reasonable and concerted efforts become possible. Therefore, information is a necessary component of planning. A second difficulty that he points to says many planners and sorry, many planned actions produce unexpected results according to Sen and according to many critics of planning. And the conclusion would be like it was in Beirut, why then do we plan? Why not release planning and make it much more of a natural process of the free market, etc.? In response, Sen argues that what is needed is not so much no planning, but a better understanding of why unexpected results may happen. Thus, he insists on the need to look at precedents, comparisons, international participation that would allow for this kind of uh, comparisons to happen, and mechanisms to allow for trial and error to occur and be accepted. Thirdly, there's an objection that Sen puts forward saying that individuals are selfish agents and they will not follow a collective project. According to Sen, however, when given the trust, the adequate goods that increase the capabilities to make choices that take others into account, collectivity would be very possible. I conclude with three points. Planning, I think, is indispensable, but requires an infrastructure, an administrative infrastructure, in the sense that resembles a fully operational, participatory, transparent, and accountable system of government. I don't know what kind of democracy that would look like, but I will not uh, 
I will not venture to argue that way or the other, primarily because the second point, development is a necessary but not a sufficient condition for the establishment of a political system. Thirdly, atmosphere of trust, the safety net, experience, resources, and information are necessary for this project of reconstruction to be unleashed, let alone realized. But I do not think that neither the Iraqis alone nor the Americans alone or with the Iraqis can provide this excessive, expanded, and comprehensive atmosphere for this to happen. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, our third speaker this afternoon is Frank Duffy. Thank you, Guy, and uh, I'm very pleased to be here. Uh, as uh, was explained, I'm an architect. Um, this is the School of Architecture. I'm very pleased that this particular event is taking place here. I studied here, and I'm an optimist still, <laughs> uh, even after today, because I've been very struck by the eloquence with which people describe the constraints of historical circumstances, the uh, conundrums of the balance of power, uh, the insecurity engendered by these great uh, uh, political science analyses, uh, issues impossible to resolve. Of course, I've got to take into account the important points that have been made about the importance of the rule of law, security, the decriminalization of society. And what I want to do is to offer uh, an additional uh, comment, perhaps naive, uh, a footnote to the discussion that's gone on today, and I hope it's a positive footnote. What I want to say is that how the process of reconstruction, practical reconstruction uh, of the Iraq uh, may be used to alleviate the conundrums, the problems that have been described so well. They could be used to engender trust. They could be used to pull the Iraqi state, the Iraqi people together. Conversely, how the process of reconstruction is handled uh, if it is handled arbitrarily and badly, it will make things so much worse. And here, I want to put my cards on the table. I fear the uh, consequences of technocratic uh, in in organizations, the Bechtels, the Halliburtons, and their uh, uh, entry into this fragile society. Uh, and, of course, I'm speaking from a, um, not from a, uh, macro-political science perspective, I'm trying to talk from a project base upwards, from a micro-level. I do believe in the possibility of change for the better, even in hopeless situations. And perhaps that comes from the uh, particular uh, tradition of design in which I was raised in architecture and urbanism, uh, the ideas which are described as urban design, which were developed in the United States in the uh, 60s, um, the idea of uh, the design process being open and democratic, uh, but sophisticated enough to acknowledge and counterpoise many constituencies, many interests, city hall, big business, the local economy, factions and, and communities, uh, all done in the context of action in relation to real projects of real economic and social and physical significance. Uh, that's the optimistic program that uh, forms the thinking uh, that, uh, that I'm putting, my, the argument I'm putting forward. And it so happens that I've developed this, uh, uh, th those insights from that, that uh, period 
in uh, the context of uh, people-intensive projects, uh, projects which are, uh, involve large numbers of people uh, in uh, buildings working together for some common purpose in offices and in universities, learning environments, uh, where uh, the only way in which the, the goal or the collective goals could be reached was to involve large numbers of people in the process, which is a kind of democratization of the design process. Uh, in, which involves the creation of trust rather than the imposition of order. Um, and uh, the battles that had to be fought in, that, uh, in my career in that context are often about escaping from the uh, evil shadow of the mechanistic ways of thinking about society uh, that uh, uh, developed in the late 19th century, uh, the Taylorist mechanistic view of society that uh, uh, the that people are units of production, that engineering tradition which is so strong um, in the architecture of so much of the infrastructure even in developed countries in the West. So if I can put an image uh, forward, and uh, now that you know what, I, what I'm interested in, when uh, on the television there were those photographs uh, of the uh, burning ministries with the looted filing cabinets, the papers flowing in the streets, the pools of smoke, what went on? in those ministries? What kind of uh, apparatus of control and decision-making existed there? Uh, I want to know. Um, it's uh, uh, perhaps more important. I want to know uh, not just what they were like, but what should replace them. Uh, are they as bad as the, uh, the, the divisive forms of, uh, of environment that are, have been so common in many other parts of the world? So, I'm talking about capital projects, but, and I'm talking about the design, physical design of the working and learning environment, but I'm arguing that this is not a neutral or passive matter. Uh, it's certainly not something that should be left to the technocrats. Uh, it is not value-free. Uh, these buildings are laden with values. What I'm saying is exactly the opposite. The landscape of the city, uh, the kinds of buildings... Uh, the sort of environments, the interiors, uh, together constitute an incredibly powerful language about fundamental values. It's a language which is more persistent and more sustained uh, because it is uh, perhaps in, in, uh, not read in a normal way than practically any other medium. And the way in which these uh, environments are procured and managed is also important. Uh, to put it positively, the way in which the involvement of people in the process of uh, reinventing their culture, their ways of working, and how that can be related to the, uh, the physical organization of space is a huge teaching and learning opportunity. To just make the point, uh, values such as openness, accessibility, transparency, agility, uh, responsiveness, consistency are expressed by such environments and very clearly. And so the opposite, uh, values such as the uh, uh, division, opacity, sluggishness, uh, insensitivity, arbitrariness are also expressed by such environments. And I'm in a, in a situation where uh, I see many organizations uh, learning uh, the significance of this language and how to use it in a way that can advance their cause. Uh, 
I was reminded in the discussions earlier about the uh, model of the revival of uh, Germany after the Second World War that um, perhaps not many people know this. There is a huge difference between the working environment in Germany and in the United States, which is because of the importance in the German um, uh, polity after the Second World War of uh, the social democratic tradition of emphasizing the importance of individual freedom and therefore the architecture of those buildings throughout Germany are all about the importance of individuals and how they work. Therefore, they're shaped like the fingers of my hand. They're all about the right environment for individuals. Totally opposite of the much more mechanistic uh, open-plan uh, cube environments of Dilbert and the uh, North American corporate tradition, which has all sorts of values built into it, which are usually unquestioned. But there are alternatives, there are other ways of doing things, which uh, architecture is very eloquent about. Another uh, more contemporary example is um, organization, or examples I can give several, many, organizations which are uh, reinventing their culture through uh, not just physical design, but through the process by which that design is acquired and the steps that are taken through the uh, the uh, occupation and, uh, of these buildings uh, and the management of that process in such a way that the new ideal, the new idea of what the organization should be about is reinforced by the design uh, and the uh, good power of the design is made possible through that, the management of that process. Design is a catalyst for change, for important cultural change, but only a catalyst if the process is managed and communicated and only if that process is relevant to the context and only if the intentions are made clear and that people are involved and buy into it and agree it. In other words, having said that, there must be many different ways of organizations, businesses, uh, universities, etc., accommodating themselves and using the physical infrastructure in order to achieve what they want. Uh, and the, the, therefore, this project, someone called it Project of Democratization, um, is uh, not just something that is proclaimed, it has to be won. It's a process. It's not just about productivity and efficiency, it's about people and what they value, what the Iraqis value, what they think is important for the kind of society that they wish to have. And unless that process happens, um, that I think what could be imposed uh, could be totally unsuitable and very uh, dangerous, pernicious, poisonous. So there would be many building projects in the recreation of Iraq. Uh, working project by project, could one imagine such a process? This is where my optimism comes out. Could that process be managed in a subtle, clever way without too much centralization involving uh, the, the, the real balance of power in society so that the design of buildings, cities, universities, oil installations, factories, schools is appropriate for the kind of society that Iraq actually wishes to achieve. And not just appropriate for it, is actually the instrument by which that kind of society is achieved. So that's all I want to say. Uh, you can't impose, it must be built up. And I think, I hope I've given to two common phrases a new meaning. One is uh, learning on the job, and the other is nation building. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Um, somebody, I forget who said that uh, architects and engineers are inveterate optimists, and I think it's uh, a good thing that that's the case um, today. Um, Bruce has a question. 
I think a primary question in terms of the reconstruction of Iraq concerns what should happen to the palaces. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, personally, but that's personal position. I think one of the big mistakes that is currently done in Eastern Europe is to destroy quite systematically the remains of the communist regime. I think there is always a danger in the erasure of memory, even if it's uh, for the benefit of democracy. Uh, I think, for example, the Romanians kept the Ceausescu Palace, which is not a great architectural masterpiece, but which is an integral part of their recent history. So I was a little annoyed, you know, by, you know, these kind of systematic destruction. Uh, I don't think at all that the Ba'ath regime was a good thing, but it's part of Iraq heritage. So uh, there is probably not keeping everything. There seem to be quite monstrous uh, heaps of c concrete. But I think a sense of memory is necessary and, uh, you know, keeping some of that. You know, after all, Versailles is not especially a symbol of democracy, and people were quite glad to have something like 1789. But now uh, people are, uh, in a way, it's part of, you know, the, the French heritage. I, I, I agree. And one way that it has been done in other places, for example, in Italy after the fascist rule, many of these buildings that were called Casa del Fascio, for example, were, became Casa del Popolo. The axe was removed and another sign was added, and they were very good buildings after all. So maybe a jury of architects can decide which are horrible and which are not. And actually, many of them are re indeed uh, gruesome-looking. Really and horrible. many of them yeah, actually take on really <laughs> primary <laughs> positions in the landscape of the city that either could be replaced, yeah. but with monuments that stand in those places because they're very well placed, uh, in, at least in the skyline of the city, the, the ones I've seen in, in pictures, uh, and uh, taken over by public functions. Whether and, and actually the worst that could happen is that they would become the places for the regime again. Uh, but I think the accessibility of these these, money, these buildings uh, would be important, that, that they are taken over by the, and accessible, made very accessible rather than exclusive again, which is interestingly what happened in Iran apparently after the revolution. Many of the main buildings that were built for the Shah became exclusive use for the mullahs, which, which maintained the exclusivity of the use of these buildings for power. Can I follow up with one related question to this? In Iran, as you know, the Shah very much emphasized Iranian and Persian uh, culture, and it was a factor in the revolution. How do you think this will affect, for example, the vision of culture in Iraq vis-a-vis, -vis, for example, Mesopotamian culture and society? It seems to me a question that may come to bear at some point. Yeah. Well, when it comes to the iconography of the architecture, unfortunately, Saddam Hussein did not leave any layer of his history Un, untouched by his appropriation, by his need to appropriate uh, a hero from the past at one period of, of his regime or another. So that Babylon became his domain, he became Nebuchadnezzar, he became everybody, and along the way appropriated the whole iconography of that architecture and rebuilt it, made it, made it that of his regime. And so to, de, uh, to launder all of that imagery from Saddam Hussein might take some time, uh, but it, it is necessary that that 
iconography is maintained and yet given a new identity in a way. And uh, how that is done, how the bleaching process can take place, I'm not sure. But it, I think it's necessary. I think part of it is to demythologize uh, history. That says the Shah built a kind of mythical, you know, Persian nation. Uh, so did Saddam Hussein and many other nations. Well, the German Nazi also built a very specific vision of German history. Uh, this is why I think there is memory so important, because I think the first task is probably, you know, uh, to, to get out of the myth and this kind of fabrication of ideological myth. Yeah, yeah, to escape the myth and to reappropriate the myth and to uh, invent, as the Germans have done in the architecture, a new myth, an alternative myth. I think these are very important processes which uh, you know, must be taken very seriously. But it, I think embedded in your question and the answer is that, that it's important to redefine the buildings, not to destroy them. Uh, and that's, I think that's critical. It's the first step. Yeah, question. Listening to the eminent architects and the historians this morning, I'm, I'm reminded of a story uh, in Baghdad, which might be of interest. Uh, there's an old church, well, I don't know how to sell the story without sounding like I'm giving a plug to Saddam Hussein, but certainly a plug to the Iraqi architects. Uh, there is an old ancient church in Baghdad, which is uh, claimed to be back to the 17th century or thereabouts, abandoned by the Nestorians. And uh, Saddam Hussein, in his grandeur plans of opening up highways, up the city. One of these main highways was going to go right through this church, this ancient church. Now this church over the time, over the centuries, had acquired an aura of a shrine. Muslims and Christians would go there and do their usual sacrifices. It's a small church in a neighborhood that I don't want to say where it is, but and uh, so there was a big panic uh, that this highway was going to go right through this, destroy this church. And the architects got together with the authorities, well, the community leaders, it was a Christian church, of course, and they just didn't know how to salvage this situation. They just didn't want that this ancient monument to be destroyed. Apparently, they finally got, and I got this first hand, got to Saddam Hussein. They told him the story of the church and uh, the nature that it has acquired. And apparently he, he not only ruled that they should go around it and build a roundabout, but he even funded money for its restoration. And uh, I happen to have pictures of the ancient and the new. It's all done by him. I, I just wanted to bring this out. As I said, I don't want to give a plug to the man, but uh, certainly a plug to the, to the architects who, who were very active, uh, all sorts of Muslim architects. Christian artists were in that. And uh, this is a, a small story about I, the values uh, that uh, I think uh, I just want to add one thing to what you're saying in the sort of larger picture. Uh, some of the most prominent architects in the Arab world are Iraqis in exile. Uh, and some of those who have articulated most clearly uh, 
a position vis-à-vis -vis modernity in architecture, vis-à-vis -vis the interpretation of culture and cultural identity, are all, interestingly, Iraqis in Ejjal. I mentioned Rafat Shadrji, who helped shape the uh, Arabist style in the 1960s. I mentioned today's Zaha Hadid uh, as an Iraqi in uh, London, was one of the most prominent architects. I mentioned uh, Ma'ad al-Alusi and Hamad Makia, who are not active anymore but still very prominent figures. Uh, who have helped shape uh, traditional architecture that's quite important. So we'll rely on them to rebuild, I'm sure. I think for me what is interesting in the story is, you know, in building community we tend always to, to imagine that we build that around shared values only. But we tend to forget how we build communities also around objects, around things, actually. And the mediation of things is very important in politics too. Observation from Iraq, and maybe it's about destroying the community through infrastructure, and that is the canal system that Saddam Hussein built to train the marshes in southern Iraq. How do you how do you reverse that? Not in a technical sense, but in an image sense of infrastructure, in essence, used as instrument of destruction and punishment. Yeah, extremely important question, and I I'm sorry I forgot to mention that, but it's very important. The fact that the southern marshes were drained uh, in vengeance for the uprisings, and that not only destroyed communities but destroyed a big chunk of the environment and environmental balances in the region. Uh, I, I think there's a necessity there for rapid uh, recovery of the environment, and as such, also the recovery of the culture that was there. To what extent those communities can be brought back without it being folkloric, uh, uh, I'm not sure. But uh, there must be. I mean, there has been quite a serious documentation of those uh, communities in the past. Uh, the extent to which they could be brought back after so many years is uh, difficult, but I think a necessary undertaking, even at the environmental level only. Actually, one of the speakers, Brian Frankie, who is going to be here, but she's in Baghdad now. Uh, she started the Iraq Foundation. Uh, you read quite a bit about the fact uh, about the marsh, the, the, the drainage, and the, and the project for the lands. So there's quite a lot on that. That is a project. I think more generally, you can always build infrastructure that can be very destructive, but then. They're just, you know, destructive object. The real problem is to have sustainable infrastructure, and the infrastructure are sustainable only if there is there is some kind of community building around them. Otherwise, they just just big things, and uh, that, of course, can annihilate others. The, one thing I would just interject a comment about this: that there was an op-ed article a couple of weeks ago, and I forgot who wrote it, but it was a suggestion that the Germans get involved in the depathification program in, in, uh, in Iraq. And what struck me about the article was the idea that if a particular community has a particular history and experience, that there's an opportunity to work collectively on a specific um, issue and help in a way that is helpful both ways. And uh, when you mentioned that, it, it occurred to me that, you know, in fact, the United States was, uh, the Army Corps of Engineers was quite um, active in the last couple of years in trying to recover the damage done in the Everglades um, by their own work. And I think that, that if there's an international community that can take shape, 
part of those pieces, and I think this goes to Antoine's comment about organizing around objects as well as values, part of those pieces has to do with specific tasks bringing together specific experience that transcends um, old categories. Uh, If you were going to uh, take the, the principles that you enunciated and make uh, concrete suggestions to policymakers about how uh, to avoid this kind of highly centralized uh, decision making, yeah. what would be the kind of practical? Uh, Something I want to say, which I I I I, I, I missed out, was the Im- impact of uh, information technology on an economy such as Iraq. It is uh, quite accessible, as accessible to Iraq as it is to any other economy. The implications of that for the, the, the kind of uh, the way in which the economy develops, the way in which the uh, patterns of location and movement and the way, uh, are, are very, very strong. So what I think the, pra- the practical implication is to understand how to use that, that technology in a way that is inventive, open-ended, involves uh, uh, the best intelligence, the, the, the uh, the, the people are going to use it in a way that is good for them uh, and builds up step by step, not imposed, but worked through as, uh, as on a, in a learning process as it is uh, as it becomes available. I think I absolutely yes, and education uh, as well as uh, so that the the technology is not something alien, but something that's absorbed and used in an appropriate way for that for each particular part of the economy with direct economic benefits as a result of its application. So. Uh, a program of uh, involvement of people in the uh, in the power of technology, so that they can they can improve their lives. Uh, not top down, you know, not imposed, uh, bottom up, learned. This is just sort of a, a follow up on, on that for, for all of you. I mean, it's uh, one of the uh, points that came out of the earlier uh, panel is that. Uh, uh, rushing into a democratization process by front-loading national elections Mm. may be the wrong way to go. Um, The emphasis, uh, I think, on our last panel was on the establishment of rule of law of security. But uh, it seems to me that uh, one uh, reasonable complement to that that you've all suggested might be actually um, uh, active uh, local engagement uh, on at, at a decision-making uh, yeah. process on um, uh, object-centered yes. um, uh, projects, uh, which would, in fact, uh, involve um, cooperative trust-building uh, yeah. relationships, um, and yet wouldn't really be about uh, election uh, yeah. electioneering. Yeah. But, 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 and it would yes. ultimately build yes. the kind of political yep. skills that ultimately push towards right. um, uh, engagement in elections in yep. ways that are not yep. just simply um, uh, faction-driven. Yeah, and generates wealth along the way and uh, increases self-confidence and uh, increases skills uh, as part of the education program. That's the, 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 the thing I should, like to, I should like to see and like to recommend as, a, as an approach. Can, can I just add to that? Uh, from the Greek experience in the post-war reconstruction, during the war, some of the resistance movements were actually engaged in assessing the damage. And uh, these were grassroots movements, municipalities, mayors, etc., were constantly trying to assess the damage. And immediately after the war, there was a mobilization on the part of government to uh, ask everybody in their region to actually give very accurate assessment of the damage. This provided the infrastructure initially for the so that when the aid came and when the Ministry of Planning and Ministry of 
public works, etc., came to implement, they were relying already on on the data first, which is extremely important, and that I think is missing in Iraq, and then on the existing setup that was made impromptu in order to ad hoc, in order to uh, handle the data gathering, and that helped generate what was known as the Greek example, the Greek model, which was used by the Americans partly as an example for this Marshall Plan afterwards, immediately afterwards. So th hmm. that participatory process was ad hoc, perhaps, not meant to be participatory initially, but just that was what they needed for the assessment, became a successful basis for copying it elsewhere. I think what is complex in the case of Iraq is that we're in need of two very different things. One, which is still planification, for a if only because of the reason of big hydraulic system. And big mm -hmm. hydraulic system go with some kind of very centralized coordination if you want to manage them, them well. And on the other hand, I, I do totally agree on the idea that of, you know, minute community building around, you know, very socially oriented objects. And I think the two threads have been, uh, have to be followed simultaneously, which is not very simple. So conciliating a relatively centralized degree of planification on certain key infrastructure and on the other hand, you know, trying to, to build very minutely, you know, consensus on objects of local interest. And I think we need, need both in Iraq's case. I wonder if it's optimistic to think that Bechtel might provide that level of education. Well, since... Given what we've seen on the big dig in Boston, um, um, <laughs> I'm not, let's say, total, let's say I'm not totally optimistic, but I'm not also totally pessimistic. It's probably because I try not to be too French. And um, let's say this is where I disagree with what was said this morning, you know, on uh, unilateralism. I think the Americans have won the war. It's now time to open the game. Uh, perhaps not to the French, I do understand that. That's really asking too far, too much. But let's say opening the game in, in order to foster, you know, negotiation, discussion, and so forth. I think Bechtel, why not? But if Bechtel is really playing a collective game, uh, I think the reconstruction of Iraq seems, you know, uh, it's more complex than Kosovo, for sure. It's a bigger country, uh, and so forth. So I think part will depend on the capacity of Bechtel to really open to other partners, whoever they are. Again, based on the Bechtel experience in Lebanon, the Bechtel plan was produced in 1991, immediately after the war, and it was seen as it's necessary that we produce a plan. And so uh, Bechtel was commissioned and with very little information, with very little data, and with very little presence on the field, because it was at the time when they were collecting the arms from the militiamen, uh, they produced that report. It was seen that that report was important. And today it's completely dismissed as being inaccurate, as being incomplete, as being all of that. But what it did is it provided through a physical document uh, the possibility for discussion around it and the possibility for its criticism. And in many cases, like the downtown Beirut plan, the first plan was completely dismissed. But through the physical re rehearsal, it allowed us to see which players were going to be involved in it uh, for those who wanted to raise their opinion against it, to raise it and to be incorporated in the decision making about that. So in many ways, the physical plans, whether at the national scale or the local scale, provide a framework which helps you understand, okay, what are the factors involved and what are, who are the players involved, even though it doesn't get implemented. 
and usually, and it's interesting that maybe someone should write the history of planning to see if there's always a second plan that gets implemented, not the first plan. Are you happy with the development of the central area of Beirut? Needs another conference. I, think so. <laughs> I want to just add a comment to that. Um, at, at, at the World Trade Center after 9-11, Initially, most of the planning was taken over by the um, Department of Design and Construction, who was not at all set up to, to do this and just happened to be there and happened to have staff that, that was quite capable. And Mike Burton and Ken Holden and the, the folks that later became the heroes of this um, were just on the site, uh, near the site, and were sent there by the mayor to take over. Um, they were uh, in charge throughout the more chaotic phases in the first couple of weeks and made all the key decisions um, and surprised everyone with their decisiveness. I mean, people who everybody knew as being bureaucrats started to have a very mm -hmm. good sense of what were the right um, uh, people to, to reinforce in making decisions about demolition and so on and who were the crazies who should be sort of put aside. Bush... Um, uh, and his um, administration at a certain point com came under pressure um, from Bechtel to give them an opportunity um, to participate in this um, bonanza because there was a lot of money involved. And they showed up about um, three, four weeks after 9-11 um, or so, ostensibly to take charge and to bring some order to this mess. And as they took charge, um, in really in a matter of a week, it became quite clear that they had no idea what to do. But the fact that they came in and created that reaction reinforced everybody's confidence in the civil servants that had taken charge and that were then seen quite clearly to be much more capable than, um, than the, private, the sort of private sector, in which in New York, after years of hearing all about privatization and so on, it was really quite a revelation to, to have the community recognize that these civil servants were, were far better, far more capable, far harder working than anybody could come in from the private sector. So they did serve a really good purpose in coming in and being thrown out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. That's a very paradoxical way. Okay. seems to me that something that we have not talked about today, which is central to all this, is owning the oil issue. It seems to me in dealing with patrimony and, and so forth is that it is so crucial mm -hmm. in the discussion of forming what kind of democracy is central to Iraq, the notion of how you deal with ownership and that people's ownership of this resource. Clearly, this is going to be, there's some people who are saying that that has to be almost a separate discussion because there's fear if there's a federal structure, it will be taken over and split. That if there's a too centralized structure, it will again deal with the problem of failure of ownership. So it seems to me that of all the issues that is central to this country's future in this regard, one of the things is going to be to decide right away how the resources, oil resources, are going to be managed by the people of Iraq. And how are they going to be fueled into civil society? Because where I see the biggest problem is really, you know, once you have the sack of money, how did you, the, do you inject it into the society, which is far from being very clear. Yeah, absolutely. Given the way uh, that, parts of money like that have a way of undoing the greatest problems. You can set up the most wonderful intellect and the most wonderful 
bureaucratic structure to make sure that it all gets distributed. But once, once you hand it over to people, they have a tendency to hold on to it. No, I think this is where, you know, I uh, tend to be not to be that keen on, on the general idea of democracy, but this is very precisely where democracy applies first in the affair. That's to say, I think before the election, to to find to to find a political mechanism to to fuel that money into society and projects is, I think, the the, the most urgent issue. I do totally agree. It's even more important than free election, at least in the first stage. Well, I think I'm going to turn it over to Josh to um, close. Again, thank you very much to our speakers. I just wanted to very briefly uh, offer my thanks um, to uh, all of uh, our speakers, um, to uh, people uh, from uh, Princeton um, uh, who uh, came in uh, on short notice, but um, especially uh, to uh, the speakers who came uh, from outside of Princeton, um, uh, often on even shorter notice, uh, uh, who have um, agreed to share uh, a variety of expertise uh, with us um, in ways that I think uh, have been um, uh, extremely productive. Uh, when uh, we first started discussing uh, the possibility for this kind of conference, uh, we didn't really know uh, exactly how it was all going to go. Um, we were quite sure that we didn't want to just have a, a conference on policy. Uh, we didn't want to just have a conference on, on history. Uh, and uh, we didn't just want to have a conference on uh, philosophy um, uh, or on architecture. But we wanted to see all of these things come together. Uh, none of us, I think, had a uh, grand architectural plan that would bring all of these things together. Um, uh, we uh, uh, basically closed our eyes and uh, uh, had the faith um, that if we brought people together of goodwill um, uh, and let them uh, speak to one another um, uh, and uh, over the course of the day, uh, that we would actually learn something. Um, and I actually feel that we have. I think that this is a conversation that I suspect um, hasn't been had before. Uh, I don't think that this uh, set of um, uh, expertises has been brought together um, in this way before. Uh, we don't yet know um, uh, what sort of afterlife uh, today's work should have. Uh, we're actually at this point very interested in um, your input uh, on that um, so that uh, if uh, uh, anybody has some thoughts about how the, what was learned today could best be brought together into some uh, coherent uh, story, something that actually might have an afterlife. I'd encourage you um, to uh, speak to any one of the uh, conference's organizers, um, to myself, Josh Ober, um, to Dee Nordenson, um, to Mike Duran, uh, or to Bruce Hitchner, each of whom, once again, I thank uh, for um, all of your help uh, and just thank uh, all of you for for coming um, and being with us today. Um, and I think trying to think anew 
think freshly about what truly is uh, one of the uh, genuinely important questions uh, of our own time, important for the United States, important for Iraq, important for, I think, the entire Arab and, and Islamic world, uh, and indeed uh, important for the future of the world as a whole. I think that on the pivot of how well the future of democracy in Iraq goes may, um, in fact, turn uh, a great deal of the uh, how well the uh, uh, future history um, of the world goes for the next uh, uh, 10 or 15 years anyway. So I think we're doing important work here, um, and I thank you all once again for coming.